Welcome to the Carl Reader Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Be Your Own Boss podcast, where I'm delighted to be joined by the pretentious Dougie Brimson. Now, he, um, <laughs> he, he asked me not to introduce him in a pretentious manner, but I'm going to anyway. Dougie is a former military man turned football hooligan turned Hollywood screenwriter. I think we can all agree that that's one hell of a story. So, Dougie, welcome to the show. Uh, I'm delighted to be here, but when I said pretentious, it's for me not to be pretentious, not you. <laughs> you can be as pretentious as you like. I will be. I'll blow smoke up your ass. Don't worry. <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. So, so Dougie, tell us who, who is Dougie. Um, I am the son of an entertainer uh, of Cockney stock. Um, I was born in Hemel Hertfordshire. Uh, of quite a large family. Um, my dad was, um, my mum and dad were one of the, the um, moved out to Hemel Hempstead, which is a new town after the Second World War. Sure. So we were the first generation kind of born and, and grew up in Hemel Hempstead. Um, my dad uh, was a ma- obviously a massive influence um, on my life, but I didn't really understand how until much later on. And, and I say that because my, being a musician and a comic, uh, my dad was uh, fairly unique, and our upbringing, up dragging, I always say, was was fairly unique. Um, and all my brothers, I've got three, four brothers and a sister. Uh, my sister became almost a surrogate mum to us all. Sure. Um, helping my mum out, bringing us, this, dealing with this war zone on a daily <laughs> basis. And my brothers all kind of gravitate toward the music and the entertainment industry. But it never really uh, interested me. I, I'm the third. Sure. Um, I was I, for some reason I was always more interested in engineering, um, and I got into through a neighbour. I got into motorsport, um, and then my sister met a guy who was also into motorsport, and uh, engineering just fascinated me. And then I, I went through school, and then in '75 um, I was going into the sixth form. Um, to be uh, an engineering draftsman. Uh, that's what I wanted to do. That's what fascinated me. I loved it. And then on a whim, um, I jumped on my moped, rode over to Watford, uh, and enlisted in the Royal Air Force. As you do. As you do. Uh, and we've got no military links in my family at all. So sure. So you gave up college at that point. Yeah. I, okay. I, yeah. Um, I took a form home to my mum and dad, and my dad said, what's this? And I said, oh, well, I want to go in the Air Force. And he said, when? I said, well, as soon as you sign this form. Really? Sure. Uh, and he said, well, if that's what you want to do, fine. I think he was just glad to have, like, a body out of the house, to be yeah. honest. Um, and then, literally six months later, on New Year's Eve, 1975, I left home, age 16, uh, went to Lincoln, and uh, my first day in the RAF was 1st of January, 1976. Fantastic. And uh, I stuck that out for 18 and a half years. Wow. And it was fabulous i mean i went through uh what the cold the cold war a lot of the the, the troubles in northern ireland sure. and the impact that was having on forces in the uk and in germany um the first gulf war and then in 1994 i um left um margaret thatcher was trying they were trying to slim the, the forces down sure and uh, they were throwing money at people to, to leave and uh, i because of the situation with the Gulf War and the job I was doing, I was looking at 
maybe five, six, even seven months a year away. And I had three little kids and yeah. I didn't really didn't fancy that. So I took the money and ran. And um, I left the Air Force with no idea of what I wanted to do. The only thing I knew was I didn't want to uh, be an engineer anymore. Okay. And I didn't really want to work for anybody else. I and mean, it's tricky, isn't it? Because once you come out of military, you're, you're, you, you've been bought up. It's pretty much half your life in a very regimented fashion. In fact, more than half your life in a yeah, regimented fashion and structure and systems yeah. and so on. Uh, what, what was it like jumping out jumping out of the military? Well, it, it, it was quite, I found it quite easy because we moved back from... We'd been based in uh, Oxfordshire. And... Um, and the, in the previous year, I'd done four months in the Falklands as a, um, on a tour of the Falklands. Sure. And um, which kind of reinforced the idea, I, I want to get out of this, I've had mm, enough mm. of this. And so um, I found, because I was also doing a lot of motor racing at that time, and I was, I was more and more dealing with people who weren't in the military. Right, okay. And I'd also stopped drinking, because you drink a lot in the forces. Sure. A lot. And I stopped drinking... Um, mid 80s I think yeah about the mid 80s and um, so I didn't mix in the, the sergeant's mess circles the sure. big function circles I didn't really do that scene and um, so I found the transition quite easy my wife found it really difficult because she'd gone from being almost a village within behind a wire which mm. it is and a fantastically tight community where there's always something going on yeah to be in moving into a world where if you want something you've got to sort it out yourself and there is no one you know there's no wives club there's sure. no none of all that sort of stuff going and, on and she had you around as well yeah and she had me there full time <laughs> not knowing what i wanted to do sure. and luckily i mean we had a massive amount of money mm. which we've been given by uh the military and um we just literally began working our way through that. Sure. So, so what came next? So, yeah, you're out military, you've had this payoff. What next? Well, we basically spent a year doing our house up and going on holiday. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't too bad. And then, um, but all the time I've got this nagging thing, I need to do something. And uh, I just couldn't, there was nothing that kind of interested me. I, I really messed up when I was leaving, because the military offer you all kinds of resettlement packages. Sure. And I really messed that up. I didn't take full advantage of that. Um, and so uh, I ended up, my brothers at that time were working, doing a lot of extra work for film and TV. Mm. And uh, and I ended up doing that okay. for a while. Um, for about six months of that. And, and that became almost a full-time job for a while. Wow, so you were the guy at the bar or... Yeah, pretty yeah, much. Okay. Pretty much. It was it was it was a giggle. You were doing something, you know, we were quite busy. Um this was 90 you know, late eight, 94 to summer 95. Sure. And we were working probably four or five days a week. So the money was all right. We were going in there and everywhere, meeting lots of, of people. So it was it was good fun. And then um but you kind of get this feeling that I've got to do something else. Mm. You know, I've got three kids to bring up. The money has almost pretty much run out by that point. Sure. Although we had, had a very good time. And so um, around the same time, we, Eddie, my younger brother and I, because we, we all mostly worked together, two jobs beating people up on mm. TV. And, 
and we began thinking about well, what can we do what else can we do and we there was there was ideas slashing around and then um out of nowhere really we we began to become aware that there was this kind of uh, stuff motion growing around the the idea of Euro 96 which was sure. the following year and the problem of football hooliganism and we were reading all this stuff which was absolute bullshit to yeah. be honest academic crap and it's and we had been going to football for a long time and we had been you know on the peripheries of that scene we sure. were never like hardcore hooligans of you know no we were Watford fans for goodness sake <laughs> Elton John's club it's not uh, yeah, we're not West Ham, not yeah. Millwall, or nothing like that. But we kind of understood the scene and how it worked, and 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 we were reading all this stuff, and it's like this doesn't apply to us. We're not racist. We're not right wing. We're not from a broken home. We're not stupid. Um, and the more we read, we thought, well, there's an opportunity here um, to do something. And we had an idea of of writing a book based okay. on our experiences, but on the proviso that. We need to get this out for Euro 96 because sure. there's money to be made. So sure. we've got a year, basically. Uh, we had no, I mean, neither of us had ever written much before. I'd written some stuff for sponsors while I was in the Air Force. And of course, you're writing reports and all that sort of yeah. crap all the time. But in terms of putting a book together, we hadn't got a clue. No, that's interesting that, you know, the, the driving force of writing a book was different to most books in that world and in that genre. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, well, the genre as it was didn't really exist at that point. There had been a few really successful books. Mm. Um, Colin Ward steaming in and, and, you know, Among the Fugs, which is an awful book. And um, But we thought there's something that we want to write a book. The way we're, If we're going to do it, we can't do it about us. Sure. Because it's like, that would be like a pamphlet. We need to look at the, the history, the motivations, you know, the press, the media, all these sorts of stuff, any old crap we can fill a book with. Mm. Uh, because it was all about making money. Because you think you're going to write one book and you'll be, you know, living in a castle in the middle of nowhere. Sure. It doesn't work like no. that. No. We didn't know that. We, we never spoke to anyone who'd written a book. So we started putting some stuff together and we started gathering anecdotes from other people, which is which was a... a a clever way to do it because we got lots of insights from all other people and mm. it also filled the book up quite quickly. Sure. And um, and in the end we got to the point where we're going to have to approach a publisher. Yeah, so at this point you had written a book. No, no, sure. no. Okay. At that point we'd written, we had loads and loads of notes Okay. and we'd got a rough structure. Sure. And we had a rough idea of the tone we wanted and who we were going to aim it at and that's key. I mean, you know, if we want to talk about writing later, that's a fundamental thing that so many people get wrong. Sure. Because one of the things that the publishing world forgets, continues to forget, and authors, that's an accusation I throw at most authors, is that the most important person in that process, in the whole publishing process, is the reader. Yes. Because if they don't want to read your book, they ain't going to buy it. So no one's going to make money. And we wanted to make money. Sure. So we aim the book at ourselves. And we wrote it in a man. We constructed it in a manner where blo you know blokes read on one of three places. They read in bed, uh, on the toilet, or on holiday. Sure. And so you need to write your book in chunks, easily digestible chunks. And if you read any of my books, they're all written like that because it works. Sure. And um, so we got a load of it together. We've probably done about a third of a book. This was late 95 I think 
and the furore was growing mm. Mm. Um, around the hooligan stuff. And, uh, and I said, well, we need to approach someone. So I walked into WH Smith's, picked up a book, Gary Lineker's autobiography. I'm sure it was that. Um, it's published by Hodder Headline. Yep. Wrote to Hodder Headline uh, and they wrote back. Fantastic. They said, send us some stuff. And we sent them some stuff and they wrote back and said, we really like this. Um, send us some more stuff. And this went on until they had about four or 5,000 words. Sure. And I wrote to them and said, look, if, if you don't want it, tell us. Because you, it, we're writing a whole book here. We haven't got all day. Yeah. There's a finite window here. And we were actually filming um, uh, a skinhead movie. And I say skinhead in the sense that it was a movie about skinheads. Sure, it wasn't sure. a skinhead movie. Um, in Hamburg. And my wife rang me up and said, um, you've uh, headline. There's a letter here from headline. I said, well, open it up. And they said uh, they want to do it. They want to pay you in advance. Wow. So three grand. Yeah. So it was party on. And we, we weighed into it. Now, we thought that's how it happened for everybody. No. It was only years <laughs> later. It was only a long time later that we realised, well, it, that's not how it works. No, uh, Doug, do you know, your story is um, scarily similar to mine. Um, even so far as my first publisher was Hodder and you know, very little negotiation around it and so on. It was um, pretty much fair and done. But for most people trying to get on that ladder, oh, um, yeah. they'd be yeah. envious. Yeah. So, OK, so, so you got the deal with Hodder yeah. and um, game on, start writing a book and so on. Yeah. How was that process for you? You know, it's, it's obviously inspired you in some way to carry on writing. Um, well, all we did was, I mean, we only thought we were going to write one book. Mm. So we caned it, really. We knew we wanted, they wanted 75,000 words, so we gave them 75,000 sure. words, maybe a bit more. Punted it off to them. They sent us back a load of notes, most of which we disagreed with. So we said that we're not, you know, I'm not having that. I'm not having it in terms of content. We know our content. Yeah. Don't, you know, I mean, our, our editor was a guy called Ian Marshall. who was a brilliant guy. I said, but don't tell me my subject. Sure. Because you don't know it. And he's like, fair enough, we'll run with it. So it came out in uh, the March 96. And Eddie and I both, you know, we're both shaven-headed blokes. Sure. Uh, and he said, look, you're, how do you feel about promoting this? And I said, just get us anywhere. Get us anywhere you want to get us, we'll go. It doesn't don't give a shit who it is. Um, all of a sudden, the, the headline PR people went into overdrive with BBC, ITV, you know, everybody. And we were everywhere. Fantastic. So and this was back in the day that publishers did some oh, yeah, publicity yeah. behind it. It's yeah. excellent. Um, and the fact that we were quite eloquent and we weren't prepared to take no crap off anybody. Because you, you'd go into, you know, and Nick in the morning or BBC Radio News or whatever, and they'd want to rip you apart. Sure. You know, you're racist hooligan fogs, you know, your damage you're doing to the country. Oh, oh, oh it's crap. And we'd just sit there and say, it's not like that. Mm. And we'd explain why it's not like that. And... Um, and the book was massive. You know, it just exploded everywhere. And um, after the tournament, Headline got to us and said, Can you do, do you want to do any more? Can you do, do any more? So we did another three after that. Sure. In, within two years. We did four books within two years. And um, we just carried on from there, really. It just led into other stuff and... and uh, yeah, we just milked it. We just milked it for because all the time we're thinking we're not going to get away with this for long, so we might as well make make the most of it. Yeah, because we've got yeah. we started to get a lot of stick from within the football world sure. as well, 
because some were saying, well, this is all crap. This is all made up. You're claiming all this. You're claiming all that. Well, there's, we, we aren't, aren't half of biographies nowadays anyway? Yeah, but we, we kind of... I I never claimed to be, you know, at Millwall Luton. No. But someone else has written about Millwall Luton. And I introduced them and say, this is, you know, this is how this came about. This is mm. how we got it. Blah, 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 blah. And there was a lot of people who took exception to this. And, uh, but people would write to me and say, your books are shite. And I said, so write a better book. Mm. I'll help you write mm. a better book. If you want to write a better book, all right, okay. And there was a load of books came out after that, which which we kind of pushed people toward doing. And and from that, you kind of had the, the, the explosion of what became known as Hooli Lit. Yeah. Um, which eventually spawned something like 72 books. Wow. Most of which was by first-time authors. Sure. Some of them were appalling, generally appalling. Some of them are great. And some of the authors went on to do other stuff, and so, a couple of them spawned movies and, and things like that. But Hooli Lit never got any credit from within the publishing world. It made a lot of people a lot of money, mm. you know, um, publishers primarily. Yeah, if you, if you don't mind me asking, so of your four books, I mean, if we start with the first one, how many books did you sell, the first one? Uh, oh, now you're asking. I mean, everywhere we go is, um, is still, still. I mean, all of them are still for sale sure. as e-books now. Because the e-book kind of gave me a second window. Yes. It's really in, really interesting thing. Um, I think in total, I added it up, and bearing in mind that the crew and everywhere we go are free downloads. Sure. Now. Lost Leaders. Brilliant idea. Lost Leaders. Brilliant. In total, it, worldwide, it's something like just over three quarters of a million. Wow. So that really, that's really good going. Um, obviously, bearing in mind some of them are free, but in terms of the, the reach and the exposure and so on, and what did you learn about the writing process along the way? Nothing. Because <laughs> th- uh, this is a stupid thing. I never wanted to be a writer. Sure. I never set out to be a writer. I never tried to be a writer. And a lot of people who've ever read my stuff will say, well, that's glaringly obvious. But I write for a specific market. And I know my market. I know what they want. Because they tell me what they want. Sure. And... Uh, You've you got to be half-decent to be published four times. Yeah, I'm not, you know, I, I, I know I'm... Thir- well, it's 15 times now. Was it 15? Wow. Yeah, I've done 15 books now. I'm doing my 16th at the moment. Um, but it, I, know, I know what I'm doing. I'm not, you know, not going to win a Booker Prize. Mm. I, know, I know what my readers want. Um, and so I give them what they want. Like any business, I give them what I want. I, d- I don't, I'm not interested in breaking into the whole kind of flowery, literary publishing world, you know. But sometimes that rankles because of everything that happened, not just with me, with other authors as well, we were really successful. We never got that recognition. I always say we're not at the bottom of the literary ladder, we're the rubber bungs underneath. Sure. Because everyone despises us because we were successful very quickly. And there's no recognition of that ever come from anywhere. Mm. I'm not, I don't want, I don't need that recognition. But the, of all the other things that we did, we brought a lot of people back into reading. People who'd never read before suddenly started reading like Hooli Lit books. Because, because a, they could associate with them. That was their nostalgia. But there's another angle to this as well. I mean, you, you used the phrase business um, sort of a couple of minutes ago. But also, yeah, we rewind ten minutes ago. You said that you um, you were looking at making money from it, 
And I think that's one of the problems with the creative industries is often people don't go into it with a commercial mindset. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. they go into it for the promotion of their art or however they see it rather than oh, how most, I can make a living from this. It's just bollocks, most yeah. of it. And, and it's the same with um, the film industry. It's even worse. Um, but it, it is kind of... One of my big regrets is that I didn't... When, when Hooli Lit was at its height, I kind of had the opportunity to set up my own publishing place. Sure. And I didn't take it. And uh, and I do kind of regret that because I do think we could have done some quite good stuff there. Yeah, if everyone who wrote you a letter, you could have sent them there. Yeah, and it's it's it, it was kind of... I, I, but I, by then, I'd kind of got interested in doing other stuff. Sure. I was, I was more interested in that side of stuff. And I've I've only really done stuff that's interested me because and it's the same with writing if I'm mm. not interested I'm, I'm you know writing's difficult well if I'm not interested in the subject matter the reader sure as shit ain't going to be yeah. by the time I've finished so I've got to keep them interested which means I've got to be interested and uh, so that kind of people throw projects at me and I don't you know I had one yesterday and it's like yeah it's an interesting subject but I don't want to do it no and um that that's one regret that I didn't get into that world and have more because I I like to be in control of what I'm doing. Sure, and that's especially true of publishing, uh, which is one of the and it's one of the problems over the film industry that you're ne- you're never really in control. Yeah, so I, I was going to ask you. So obviously, the first four books were done. Um, yeah. Screenwriting, I presume, came next. No, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I did. We did the four books of headline, and then we got approached by another publisher. Uh, who wanted us to write the the lead title for their launch? Sure, uh, it's mainstream in Edinburgh, and and I wanted I had a, an idea for something. Eddie had an idea for something else. So we said, well, we'll do two books, and mm. we kind of sp- went our separate ways. Sure. Um, and I start I went more into fiction then, um, and I'd written a book called The Crew. That was my first novel. Um, and I got approached by, I, now I get a bit confused about how this works time-wise because it was around about the same time. But someone said to me, um, because at that time, the, the internet, I mean, we're talking about 2000, the internet was still kind of fledgling. It's yeah. amazing how quick it's got, it moved. And there was a lot of hooligan websites on there and, and people were becoming aware that the police were lifting people off stuff sure. that was written. So we were all very cagey. And we were all using fake names and all this stuff. And so someone got in touch with me and said, there's some bird posted something about wanting to do a film, a hooligan film. Mm. So I, I had a look at her, checked her out, got in touch with her using a fake name to check her out. She was sound. We chatted backwards and forwards for about a week or so, a couple of weeks. And I said, you need to speak to this guy called Dougie Brimson. Mm. He's written all these books. Blah, blah, blah. I don't want to talk to him. I said, well, you, you've got to talk to him because I'm not going to talk to you forever. Because sure. Whatever. And um, and then after a few days, she said, yeah, I spoke to him. Well, I knew she hadn't because it's me. Yeah. So I pushed and pushed and pushed. And eventually she got in touch with me. And uh, and that was really how Green Street came about. We, we talked about an idea. Uh, she flew me out to Hollywood. We spent 10 days kind of battering an idea around. And roughly the same time as that, maybe a little bit after, um, I got approached to do... Um, a short movie uh, by a guy called John Baird, who's just directed the Laurel and Hardy movie. Okay. Um, but up to then, I'd never written a script. I had no idea about structure, timings, sure. all this sort of stuff. I w- really winged it. 
So I began to watch movies I really liked whilst reading the script at the same time. So you're reading about pace and, and structure, and it really is a great way to learn script writing. Sure. And, and which takes us back to pretentiousness because it suggests I actually know what I'm talking about, and I really don't. <laughs> you learn on the job. I still learn, yeah. I'm still winging it. And, um, and Green, Green Street came out of that. Green Street was massive. Um, but it wasn't because I didn't really understand how the movie worked, even though I'd done a lot of extra stuff. Mm. I didn't really know how the creative side of it worked, and I found it really difficult. And there was a lot of, um, shall we say, ego clashes. Uh, and creative clashes. And in the end, I walked away from it. Sure. In the middle of filming. Uh, and then I got banned off set um, because I'd... I'd uh, because I'd worked... What, what had happened is I'd, I'd, the actors had asked me to clean up a scene. And it was the scene that me and the director had had the most clashes about. Okay. And I, I left the set and... Um, they started filming this scene. She said action. They started doing the dialogue I worked out, and she went mental. Really? Okay. And uh, and I get this phone call. Don't come back to set. Wow. And this is the stuff that you don't you don't even know oh, yeah. happened. I mean, you know, when you're watching there's, TV, there's, there's a whole there's a whole book in Green Street. Mm. But it was you know it came out. I mean it's it's still massive. It's a great thing. You know people say to me, well if it was such a problem, why have you got it on your CV? Well why would you not have it on your yeah. CV? For Christ's sake. And so um, after that, I um, sulked for a little while, uh, didn't do much at all, and just went back into writing books. And uh, I've, I've ended up doing oh, all sorts of books now. I mean, I've done non-fiction, fiction thriller, fiction comedy. Um, I've done a couple more films, adapted one of my novels for film, which was a, a really interesting experience. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's kind of my creative journey okay so if you don't mind me sharing um on the podcast we were having a, a brief chat beforehand and one of the things you said was that writing isn't necessarily what you want to do what, what, what does a little boy in you want to do i, I, I generally have no I, I mean i'm 60 now i still don't know what i want to do um th there's nothing i mean i'm working on another book at the minute and another i've got another movie on the go at the moment but it, but it's it's I know this sounds odd, but it's work, mm. and it's not. When you when you write a book, and and bearing in mind this goes back to what I said before, I I don't mix with writers. I, yeah. I know probably two or three other writers, all of whom are in football. I don't know anybody else. I never get invited to any literary dues. Bearing in mind, and this is another thing that rankles with me sometimes. I've sold three quarters of a million books. Mm. I never get asked how I do it. I never get asked about the process of writing, which sure. is fine because I wing it. That's fine. But I know what works for me. Um, and I never get asked to literary uh, film stuff, literary stuff, whatever. I just do what I want to do. But when you're writing certain books, you will get to a point where you don't want to stop writing, where you, you, you become that character and you're just like Kane in it. Yeah. Uh, and... I've kind of got that with the novel I'm doing at the moment, but it, but it's, I haven't got a project at the moment which is, is giving me that passion. Sure. And I'm not sure what it is. Uh, now, one of the things that I keep getting asked, um, and, and I, to go back a little way, one mm. of the reasons I say that is because I, I know 
when you write a book, it's not the writing's the easy bit. It's the rest of it that's the hard yeah. bit. Now, it's great if you've got a publishing deal. But I haven't got a publishing deal. Sure. Because Ladlit, as, as it's come to be known, is still kind of frowned upon. And um, so publishers, you know, they don't come to people like me and say, well, do you want to do this? We're into what you're doing, you know, blah, 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 blah. Because you're always dealing with, you know, 24-year-old graduates named Sarah. So they don't understand what blokes sure. read. They don't understand what blokes want to read. If it's not an SAS book, you know, they're not really interested. And um, I don't like that battle. I can't mm. be asked to play that game anymore. I'm 60 years old. I've done it all. I've done everything I wanted to do within writing. There are certain books I want to write. How how do you find the difference um, from, a, from a commercial perspective? You know, if we were to look at your driving force in the beginning, which was to make money, how do you find the difference between being published and being self-published? Um, well, self-publishing is easier because I make more money. Mm. Because I haven't got to go for all the... You know, I know, you know, as I said before, I know my market. I know what they want. I, I know how to deliver it. And so if I self-publish it, if I want to go down that route, I get more money. And so that's, that's easier for me. But it also means that I can work faster. Sure. Because, you know, I don't know if, or you know, if, you, if you're publishing a book, it's not just the writing, it's months before oh, it's, it's a for seven, It's for seven months' wait. Yeah, for, at, yeah, at least months, if not years. And then you've got another six, seven months before you see any money off it. Well, yeah. if you self-publish, you're, you can do it as fast as you like and, you know, you, you're earning almost straight away. And it's not, that doesn't mean I just pump out any old crap. I've got to be happy with it. Because if, one of the consequences of self-publishing to a, a specific market, if it's rubbish, they'll tell you straight away. Yes. And they'll desert you straight away. And I can't afford for them to do that. Mm, mm. And I'm already, you know, I. What an, another thing I regret is I, I haven't given them as much as I should have been doing. That sounds pretentious in the fact that there are all, all these people sitting around waiting for my books. Sure. But... You know, or I, I do get a constant stream of people saying, well, when's Billy's Log 2 out? When's this out? When's that out? And it's like, I'm working on them, but I'm also working on film projects at the same time. Yeah. And so you, you're, you're kind of battling stuff or trying to fit stuff in. And in the meantime, of course, you've got to, A, find the time to do it, but also find the motivation to do it because it's, it's often very difficult. And one of the things I've been asked to do a lot is write stuff about the military. Mm. Uh, and I've written one film about the military, which is still in development, uh, which is about um, more to do with PTSD and amputees and stuff sure. like that. But in terms of novels, you know, I, I was in the Air Force. Our world largely involved, for want of a better expression at the beginning, drinking and fornicating sure. and pissing about. And and in that world, and anyone who's has been in the military will understand this straight away. You wouldn't believe some of the things that went on, and so to put those into book form is kind of it's almost Forrest Gump esque. Yes. it would be. Um, and so I tend to slip them in as anecdotes. You know, sure, you know what I mean. Into other stuff, but I'd like I'd like to do it one day. But um, I, and I'm I'm still looking for that project. Will that I'd like to leap on and say. This is it. I've got an I've got a rough idea. I'd really like. I, I tried it with Billy's Log when I when I wrote that. That's a Bridget, Bridget Jones for lads, sure. Basically. But I'd really like one day to write a proper romance from a guy's perspective. 
proper romance because we all want the same stuff at the end of the day I'd sit on the sofa and have a cuddle at night yeah and um, I don't think it's funny, it's funny you say that it's not been done or certainly not what I know of I don't think it's been done I don't think it's been done properly mm. and if you can balance it out one of the good things about Billy's Log is that so many women re- have read it and like it because it, it, it is about a guy who, who doesn't know what he's doing sure and it's the discovery of the fact where that you know, page three and porn is a, is almost untouchable. The mm. reality is that, you know, short, plump girls uh, are where, well, not where his standards are, but where his happiness <laughs> yes. lies, yeah. where reality lies. And that's one of the beauties of the book. It's a great book. And, um, and I've got a sequel all mapped out, and I will do it one day, I promise. But um, I'd really like to, to maybe do a book which really hits that hard sure not as not as a humorous book um you know goes through the devastation of breakup and mm. rejection because rejection is the biggest contraception known to man yeah but you know I, one of the things that's shining through here dougie is that actually with a book it's not just the content that's important for you it's for it's the mindset shift yeah, there's, oh, yeah, there's something more than just yeah, yeah. the 300 pages in the book. Oh, yeah. I mean, the one thing, as I was talking about my dad earlier, and the one thing I got from my dad, I always never knew what I got from him. And then just after, he died about two years ago. And when I was writing his eulogy, um, I, I it kind of struck me that I, I realised what I got from him was the ability to tell a story. Mm. Because anyone can write, but... Not everyone can tell a story. And there's a big difference between the two. And my dad was a storyteller. And, and I can tell a story, you know. And um, I do it in a particular way. Anyone who's read it, you know, The Crew or Top Dog or Wings of a Sparrow or Billy's Log, you know, they'll, they'll understand how I write. Sure. You know, I leave lots of scope for the reader to paint pictures in their own mind. I'm not going to write, you know... Billy stepped out of his front house, you know, it was misty along the road and all this crap. <laughs> it's Billy stepped out of his house and got in his car. That's it. You yeah. paint them pictures in your head. But my, you know, my books, particularly the thrillers, are like bang, 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 sure. all the way along. Um, in fact, what I'm working on, talking about passionate stuff, I'm working on the third book in the Crew Top Dog trilogy at the moment. And part of it is, touches on things that are very close to home in terms of what's going on in this country at the moment. Mm. And I started this book probably four or five years ago before Brexit really kicked Sure. And I'm at the point now where I'm, do I really go in hard on this book and kind of um, bring in the Farage, the Brexit party, that kind of thing? Because it, I've, it's already in there, mm. but I'm really fascinated by the extremes of that and where it could lead. But you know, I think that if you don't do it, it's going to be a cracking yeah, book absolutely. for someone down the line, oh, isn't yeah, it? With, I, um, yeah. with what's going on, not, not just in the UK, but globally with politics and in particular the identity politics around it all. I'd love to. I mean, uh, there was a book I read a few years ago, I can never remember the, the author's name, called Invasion, which is about that kind of thing mm. and uh, and it's a very I mean it's a very extreme book but uh, it's an amazing read and I'd really like to do something which kind of captures 
the zeitgeist, if you want. I, don't, sure. I hate that expression, but but captures that where people can read, you know, shit, this is how bad it could go mm. if we're not careful. Mm. And uh, I think that's where I'm going. Now, if I do that, that's going to be... I like causing... Not causing offence, but I like making people think. Sure. And uh, and this would certainly make people think because it, it, it involves a character a lot of people really come to like, not just in the two books, but in the film as well. And, uh, yeah, kind of, I think, maybe... Fantastic. Time will tell. Time will tell. <laughs> Time will tell. Yeah. Um, so, Dougie, listen, we're going to dive into the um, rapid-fire questions. It's been fascinating hearing your story. Um, these questions just allow the listeners to paint a bit more of a picture about who you are, what drives you, so on and so forth. Um, but the first one is is possibly just going to be us indulging ourselves with um, our foot fetish of Adidas trainers. So, gazelle or specials? Gazelle. Gazelles. See, I'm a, a specials man myself. How, how can you? What's wrong with you? How can you be? <laughs> it's gazelles or nothing. No, it's specials, Ben Stan Smiths, Trim Traps. Uh, yeah, well, I do uh, like maybe that. gazelles above. No, I do like the odd Trim Trap, but cause, I mean, it's gazelles for me all day long. I've got loads of love them. Really? I, don't, I, I, I went through a phase of not even throwing my old ones away. Because I've got loads of pairs, but yep. you know, you, there's, you've got like six pairs, two of them you'll wear into oblivion. Yes. Um... And then you replace them too with exactly the same colour. But I used to keep the old ones as well, and my missus have started making me throw them out. Yeah, I'm um, I'm on the verge of that. I'm currently about seventy five pairs. Oh, I'm not that bad. I'm gonna be. I've got a trainer room. Yeah, I wish I had a trainer. Room. <laughs> one day. Yeah. One day. Yeah. I, Sell I, a few more books. Yeah, no, I, I <laughs> couldn't do that. I'm sixty years. I, you know, I'm I've got a broken back. I can barely walk. So trainers are a bit stupid. There's a great T-shirt. <laughs> I I love this T-shirt for, with gazelles, and it's like. Um, Adidas Gazelle's not for running. Yes. And a football, it's a brilliant football It sums t-shirt. them up, doesn't it? Yeah, it sums them up. Brilliant football t-shirt. So what bit of advice would you give your 18-year-old self? Keep a diary. Okay. Absolutely. And and these days, you know, um, take photos, take constant photos. I mean, I, I I didn't take hardly any. And the ones I did take, I've lost. Sure. Um, but keep a diary. And I've got stuff that happened to me when I was in the military, which... It's unbelievable stuff, mm. um, and it's you know it's water, you know, Forrest Gumpy. Yeah, I can barely remember it all, and there's there's stuff I've completely forgotten, and, and my recollections of certain events are completely skewed. And one of the great things about Facebook is, you know, you can say to someone, "Oh, do you remember when?" Blah blah blah, and I, they say that was you, and I say, "No, it wasn't me," and I said, "Yeah, it was you. I've got a photo of you actually doing it." <laughs> And it's like, shit, how drunk was I about yeah. that? And, um, yeah, keep a diary. Fantastic. And what's the best bit of advice you've ever been given? <sighs> Blimey. There's a $64,000 question. <laughs> the best bit of advice... Uh, the, the, the one I'm working to at the moment... Is say fuck off more often mm. to people because it, you, in this game, in the writing game, you 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 get a constant stream. You probably do in yours a constant stream of people asking you to do stuff for nothing. Mm. Um, and for for a long time, I did it a long time. I mean, when Eddie and I started, we used to do interviews for free all the time. Sure. And then we was at a football conference thing one. And this German crew were pushing us. And I said, no, I don't want to do it. I just want to enjoy it. 
No, no, we really, you know, it only took five minutes. I said, well, all right, you pay me under quid, I'll do it. You're fine. And it was, pardon? And they just give me under quid. Mm. And um, so from that point on, you know, we refused to do anything unless we were paid. Which is great when you're in demand, not so great when you're not in demand. Yeah, but you know, it's a lesson that anyone, certainly anyone self-employed, should be taken on board. Yeah, there are times, you know, it's, it's fine. What people don't understand, and I get this constantly, like people come to me, I've got this great idea for a film, blah, mm. blah, blah, blah. Um, you write it and we'll split the profits. Mm. Well, so basically you want me to work for three months and then use 20 years of contracts or contacts to get this in front of someone in the hope that they might make it. And if they do buy it, you get half of it. You haven't done anything. Mm. And I'm, but if they don't take it, I spent three months earning no money. Yeah. Please explain to me how that is an appealing prospect for me, because it isn't. And I, I get that constantly. And, and someone said to me, and it's, it's probably the best bit of advice I ever got, you're only worth what you ask for. Sure. And um, if they don't want to pay it, then... I love, I love that quote. Yeah, it's the best quote. Mm. You know, someone wants you to do it. Someone, I got approached to do something for 2022 World Cup. And they wanted me to do X, Y, Z, fly here, there, fly everywhere, talking to whatever. Mm. And, I, and they said, so how much will you want for doing that? And I said, well, you need to speak to my agent. That's what he's for. Sure. Um, because I'm terrible about talking to money. So that's mm. the agent's job. So he quoted them a price and never heard from them again. Yeah, and you know, um, having an agent for that kind of thing, or in fact a middleman on any financial transaction, really helps because oh, mo- most of us are worried about asking for money. Oh, absolutely, because certainly in a creative world, the person you're generally asking for money is the person, like your editor or your publisher. Yeah. So if he's if you ask for five grand and he says, well, I'm only going to give you two, you immediately... You're going to sign off. it anyway. Yeah, you're probably going to sign it anyway, but you're immediately pissed off with him because he's shafted me. Yeah. Well, you're not going to want to work with him particularly hard, you know, particularly hard. Um, so just give it to your agent. That's his job. That's what he sorts out. You know, whatever. Perfect. Okay, so this one cannot be one of your own, but what's your favourite book? Uh, there's two. There's two I will go to. Three I'll go to. Uh Lord of the Rings, yep. which I've read probably 16 times over the years. Uh, a book called Vulcan 607, sure. which is about the uh, Black Buck operations in during the Falklands War, yep. which I was part of. And uh, Joan Sims' autobiography. Fantastic. Love it. I love that book. Fantastic. And next question is, what book is the book that you've recommended to the most other people to read? Of me? Of mine? Uh, no, no. It has to be someone else's. Oh, John Sims' book. Yeah. Fantastic. It's just the most phenomenal. I mean, I, I love old films. I love Joan Sims. I always have done. Um, but her book is fantastic. It's just it, everything about it is parts of it are just like, oh, my God, you poor cow, what you went through. And like it, the roller coaster it takes you through. What a life, you know. And I, I just adore it. I adore that book. Brilliant. If you had set up a mastermind group with three other people, it can be um, fictional or non-fictional, dead or alive. Who, who would you choose? A mastermind group? Mm. How many people would I have in that? You could have three other people. Christ, that's a, that's a question and a half. And it's a tricky one because if I said 20, you could you could read off everybody you could think of. And if I said one, you'll read off the first person who comes to mind who's normally fairly quick. The three other people I'd have, actually, uh, are all family. Mm. 
my dad, uh, my uncle Frank, and my brother Bob. Fantastic. They just they were the yeah yeah. Love it. That's it. It is. No Richard Branson's. That's amazing. No, 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 crap. <laughs> Excellent. Last one. What's the best purchase that you've made over the last six months or so for around 50 quid that's made a difference to your life? Uh, I bought... Um, this is really stupid. Um, a 12... No, it's an 18-inch skillet pan from Tesco's okay. with a lid on. It's the best thing I've ever bought because I, I love, I've got really into cooking. Sure. And I can cook a full English breakfast in this one pan. Fantastic. It's awesome. And it can, I can do it in 15 minutes. Perfect. Absolutely love it. Brilliant. Life changing. It has changed my life, genuinely. Brilliant. Dougie, it's been an absolute pleasure. I know that we've taken some time to arrange this. I think I sent you the text probably a year ago now. Yeah, it was. Yeah, um, but listen, lovely to have you on the show. If the listeners want to learn more about you and your books, where, where can they find out more? Uh, my website is DougieBrimson.com. Uh, I'm on Facebook as Dougie Brimson and Twitter as Dougie Brimson. But if you follow me on Twitter and you take offence, please use the block button uh, because I really don't give a shit if you're offended by anything I say. Um, and you will get blocked by Stan. Uh, you will get blocked. Well, I've been blocked by. I've been blocked by most people. But uh, uh, to me, Twitter is the the ultimate manifestation of free speech, mm. and and it shouldn't be. What should set the limits? I'm a firm believer in you. Sh you should have you use your own name. I mm. don't like people who hide. I don't often engage with people who hide behind an anonymous tag. I don't really see the point. No. Um, I am prone to delete in tweets. If I get into arguments with people as I did the other day about Brexit, um, if I get to the point where you're really pissing me off or I'm wasting my time, I'll just delete everything in that thread. Yeah. So if that offends you, I don't care about that either. Um, but for stuff like football and books and general you know, veteran stuff, I mean, I'm being a veteran, I'm big on veteran stuff. Um, I think Twitter is unrivaled. Yes. But you've got to... Um, I've written a lot about trolling. In fact, trolling is one of the things that really fascinates me. And I, if there was one thing I'd like to get involved in, it is the whole subject of trolling because yeah. I'm I'm a firm believer... Sorry, I'm e eating up all no, the time. No, 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 it's fine. I'm a... F I can't talk a lot. <laughs> I'm a firm believer in... If you're getting trolled on Twitter... Um, You've got the ultimate control. Mm. This is what people miss with tw with Twitter. And it's all about, well, why should I leave? Why should I leave? Well, if I suddenly walked up to a bloke in the street and said, if you're still here in 10 seconds, I'm going to punch you in the face. What would he do? What would you do if someone did that to you? Well, you're quite big, so you'd probably hit him <laughs> first. But you turn around and walk away. Yeah. Well, why stay? Delete your account. Block them. Mute them. You've got all these tools at your disposal. Mm. Why go run into the police? Twitter sticks and stones. That's all it is. It is. It's a fascinating, uh, and not necessarily in a good use of the word fascinating, but it's a fascinating world on Twitter. It's a, it's astonishing. Mm. And one of the things that has fascinated me most about the whole Brexit debate is the way that the, the Remain side have used Twitter to kind of galvanise this, this online army. Because if you post anything remotely pro-leave, within minutes, 
you will have the FBP brigade. Yeah, just try slacking off Corbyn. Bang, bang, bang. That's fun starts. Yeah. Bang, bang, bang. Mm. And it's like, like, share, like, share, like, share, like, share. Constantly. And then it's share, comment. FBPP. Tag. Mm. So mm. all of a sudden, you, you're on your own. You've got this kind of mass assault. And, and I'm generally polite on Twitter. My agent's always telling me off for stuff like that. <laughs> but I'm generally polite. And I will, I, I'll try and answer people's questions. Because they're, they're always going on about, well, no one explains to me why you would want to leave. And I said, but no one's explained to me why I would want to stay. No. And I've got very specific reasons for why I would want to leave. Now, I've, they're on my website, on my blog, but I don't see why I should have to explain to everyone. But if you don't explain, if they ask you, a, well, you never answer my question. Yeah. Well, I don't have to answer your question. Oh, so you're a racist. But, but more, more to the point, Doug, you have to answer it in 140 characters. Yeah, and you have to answer it within 140 seconds. Yeah. And if you don't, oh, you're oh, right, he's, he's run. Oh, this is how I expected. Predictable. Oh, you're a racist. You've, because you've got to be racist if you want to leave the EU, apparently. And I just find that phenomenal that people, the whole Brexit debate has become about right v left. Mm. When it's never been that. No. You know, look up north. Family Labour voters have voted to leave the EU. So how is it a right v left thing? I don't know how... But all of that's happened through social media. This kind of drive to split the vote goes and it brings in this mantra, you know, right is wrong and left is always right. Mm. It's that that's driven this it's a whole it's, debate. It's a fascinating world on Twitter. And, I, you know, you're absolutely right that there's been almost a distortion of um, distortion of worldview on Twitter. I think it's the first thing. Oh, you know, absolutely. If, if you if you dropped onto planet Earth as an alien and believed that Twitter was representative of the real world, it, it, in all senses of, of the phrase, yeah. actually you would find that it's quite it's quite a way off centre in terms of the compass. Um, but also the the interesting thing that baffles me about Twitter at the moment and one of the reasons that I'm I'm kind of staying away from it apart from self-promotional stuff is the fact that people really believe that they can change someone's opinion in 140 characters oh god that's uh, exactly that's exactly and I'll never change my uh, my opinion on no. leaving the EU because you know my my reasons are my reasons I don't have you know uh, my reasons are to do with the military mm. primarily to do with the military um, and they always have been yeah. from day from day one. In fact, from pre Brexit. And yet, there is this kind of. If you don't agree with me, you are wrong. Mm. And they want to debate, but they don't want to debate. They want to convert, no. and that's the problem. But also, there's another there's another aspect that comes into play, and I, I don't know if it's down to the brevity of the messages, but a number of. Um, Fallacies come into play. So common common enemy theory, for example. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where, you know, I, I don't like what you just tweeted and my mate doesn't like what you just tweeted, so we must agree with each other. Yeah. Um, and, and everything becomes so black and white where actually these um, these arguments, both for and against, are so nuanced. Yeah. And that just gets lost in the whole world of social media. It's, it's just crazy. And mm. how, if someone's kind of berating you and for being... You must be stupid. You must be racist. You must be inherently right wing. You must be all of these things because you don't agree with me. How do you argue against that? 
especially when you've got someone who is, you know, Guna 75, and they've got no profile picture. You've got nothing. Mm. It could be all my missus, for all I know. <laughs> you've, you've got nothing to base it on, and yet they've got my picture, my name, yep. everything, because those are my views. And I was talking to someone yesterday about this, you know, or debating Brexit with, with somebody else, and they were trying to convert me, as usual. And they post, the other thing they do is they post these lists. Mm. Here's 10 points why you're wrong. So counter them. <laughs> counter these points. And I'm like, well, the, the first, the very first one, peace in Europe. The EU hasn't kept peace in Europe. NATO's kept peace in Europe. And that whole argument, you know, and then what about the Balkans? What about Northern Ireland for that matter? What about the Falklands? We didn't get any support from the EU. Oh, yeah, but. How can you argue with that? You can't. You what can't. a boundary. And yes, all it, exactly. It doesn't help. Um, there's, a, there's a simple way, Dougie. Yeah. Block and delete. Block and delete. <laughs> oh, but if it's bad, and this goes back to what I was saying, yeah. if it's really bad, delete your account. Mm. You don't have to be on Twitter. No. The world, you know, there is a world away from Twitter, but it is this, I've got to be on there, I've got to be on there, I've got to be on there. It's, but, it's madness. But, mate, we were, we were trying to get people to come to your profile. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No. So it's at Dougie Brimson. At Dougie Brimson. Yeah. Excellent. And the website address again? Uh, DougieBrimson.com. Fantastic, Dougie. It's been an absolute pleasure. Absolutely, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you for listening to the Carl Reader Show. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and tell your friends. This podcast was brought to you by our sponsor, DNT Advisory. Helping you unlock the magic in your business by adding value, not numbers. Find out more at www.team-dt.com. QuickBooks, helping UK small businesses stay on top of their finances.